0: two episodes before Lou is done, and I take a small break for Season 2. I am doing all sorts of research on history, magic, religion, and mythology for the next Pantheon, which is decidedly not Irish, or Celtic even. I am sad to report that it's not Japanese, which I am saving for Season 3. I guess this is an official announcement that Season 3 of Goddessy is about Amaterasu, because I love her and Japan is my area of specialty. The reason why I've decided to delay her, however, is because I am a white American dude, And given my love and respect for Amaterasu in Japan, I want to make sure that I get it as right as possible. I can handle the language since my rudimentary Japanese is passable, but the material history, cultural conventions, I need to make sure I have the proper handle on those. In respect of the culture. I'll reveal the subject of Season 2 next episode as I start getting the art together for the season cover and such, but nonetheless, things get weird. That's not spelled the normal way, for the record. Hint, hint. Let's conclude Lou's story in Ireland. Previously on Goddessy Lu's life has seen many ups and downs. Destined to free his people, Lu led the charge against the Fomorians and his fearsome grandfather, Balor of the Evil Eye. He returned order to the Tuatha de and placed them on the throne at Tara, in Ireland's center. And he avenged his father against the clan of Turian. Lu has dealt with the fairies of Tyrnanog and reigned for forty years, and the Emerald Isle prospers. While Lou has not changed, his people have, and he may not survive that change. Welcome to Goddessy, this is Episode Twenty Nine, Ahead Too Deep. The Beltane fires burned, and Lou had never been more uninspired. He knew less than half of these young people dancing around, half naked, ready to run off into the woods and make fools of themselves. Most were crowns of some plant or other. Lou couldn't remember. It had been some decades since he had partaken in those dances, either with young women, his wives, his male lovers, or anyone else, really. He had seen his own idiot son dance it, as well as the rest of his rather uninspired children. And now he was obliged to watch the next generation between his children and his grandchildren dance. The hill of Isnak rose high against the pink sunset, and tomorrow they would give offering to Shi. As came with all holidays. They observed it, they watched, and in the in-between places, they waited. For stray young men and women, most likely, to seduce them. On their own heads be it, Lou saw no point having the druids go chase off the fairies with sticks. Meltna wouldn't approve anyway. Meltna was already passed out drunk. In proper dagged fashion he had ate to excess, drank to excess, and now snored two tables away from him. That gave Lou cause to smile. His table was already largely abandoned, his closest associates all gone, his queens off having their dalliances, with his permission granted, but that was the way of his people. Affairs were only affairs without permission. He had his wives full permission, and once upon a time, he exercised that right, and in turn, he gave it to them. His advisors, whom he barely knew now, were all gone too, some dancing around the fire, some already retired to their tents around Isnak. In all honesty, he barely knew any of them now. Aermet had stepped down two decades ago to wander the land, teaching herbal medicine, and Lou had lost track of her. Corpri had been slain after insulting Ogma in front of Angus, who broke his neck with one hand. It had taken no less than three bards to replace Corpri in skill, and none came close to wit. Angus had been banished from the court for that, and thereafter had more than a little trouble acquiring the hand, the beautiful attain, in marriage for Madir, as well as the beautiful care of his own dreams. Care, he won. attain he lost. To age, most likely. Angus and Medir left the courts of the Tuatha-de-Dinan, and of Lou's early court, only Meltna still remained. He was a good friend and companion, but Lou missed Eramid. He missed Medir. He missed Corpri's wit. And he missed Bridget, most of all. He took walks often, not just around Tara, but around the whole of the island. He would visit people incognito, "'Hidden by his cloak, and they were none the wiser. "'When he was young, his people surprised him "'with their gumption, their wisdom, their tenacity. "'As time went on, as his reign as king went longer, "'they surprised him less and less. "'They grew selfish. "'They grew weary and fell in love with excess. "'Prosperity had gone to their heads. "'As the older generations died and went to Tirnanog, "'the younger generations forgot the suffering of their parents, "'of their grandparents. Lou did not forget.' but Lu felt alone in remembrance. Lunessa was less a holiday about remembering the dead and the power of the fairies, and more about the games and personal prowess of the people. Ancestors were a second thought. At Samhain, youths would bet against one another that they could outwit the she. Some died. During winter, they did not fear the calic, and many made foolish decisions and unnecessary journeys. And now, at Beltane, they cared more about carnal interaction than giving thanks for the bounty of the land, the land that belonged to the Sovereign Queens, to the she. Lew alone felt he remembered. His speeches were ignored. The faces of his crowds were now bored. No one cared what Lew of the Long Arm had to say. No one cared what the skilled hands could do. No one seemed to remember how he had saved their people. They knew the stories, but only as stories. They did not feel the suffering behind the words, nor the lessons held in them. Lu rose from the table, and no one noticed. Taking the spear of a soul, he left his cloak on the makeshift throne and made for his tent. A tent, he knew, was full of his wives and their lovers. He would make for his bed, away from theirs. And there he would sleep off the wine and troubled thoughts, and in the morning he would ride out and make good on his promise to give thanks to Andanashi. His tent was no less loud than elsewhere, though perhaps more private, more intentional. Warm from a fire in the central hearth, maintained by servants, who ignored the spear in Lou's hand. a Saul was always by his side. As he passed his queen's chambers, he smiled, knowing that they were happy. Yet something troubled him. Of all of his queens, Buick, the princess of Britannia, had never taken a lover that Lou knew of. She certainly had her lusts, but she never seemed to act upon them. Lou was no fool, but why would she be making noise now? Why would she be laughing, and with a man no less, in her private chamber in their tent? Lou would not be humiliated, not tonight. If she wanted to take a lover at last, she would ask permission at last. He entered her tent, unimpeded by her guards. Boak, what is the meaning of this? Both lounged on her couch, undressed and drinking wine, and both rose, though neither tried to cover themselves. Buick's hair was much grayed now, like silver rivers running from her amber temples, and her blue eyes had lost much of their sparkle, her curves sharper instead of smooth. The man was much younger, perhaps by two decades, younger than either Lou or Buick, but not a youth by any means. He was dark-haired, hair that had turned silver, and wore a beard. His belly was round, but his muscles were firm in his arms, and he had a sword and shield among his things by the entrance. Lou was quick to block his passage to them. "'Who is this? If you had asked, perhaps I would have allowed this, but now I must act, Boak. Thus is our way.' Boak smiled, shaking her head. "'Lou, you have as much wisdom in your head as you have cunning in how my bed is filled. Kermit has long shared my bed.' But in Britannia, we do not ask our husband's permission to take a lover. I am a queen. Only because I make you one. And a mistake has that long been. I have been king for forty years, and of all my wives, you are the one closest to a gnat in my eye. You, Kermit. I know you. How do I know you? Kermit smiled, stepping forward. We are much closer than you realize, Lou. Lou corrected. King! King! Lou. "'You are family. I am not required to be honorific.' "'You are, as I am your elder. How are we related? "'My uncles and aunts no longer keep homes above the ground, Kermit, "'and if you are not careful, neither will you.' "'Kermit gave answer. "'I am Honeymouth, the mighty Kermit of the battle squadrons "'who lead our people from our shores to raid Alba, "'the lands once occupied by those who enslaved the Dagda, my ancestor.' "'My form is fairest, second only to Angus, whom I call kin. "'But I have in me not just your kin, but your enemies, Lou.' "'Lou furrowed his brow at this, tightening his grip on his spear. "'Guards, I need this man removed from Isnok and banished from any royal ceremony and from Terra for all future engagements.' "'Kermit did not seem bothered by this. "'My mother was the daughter of your father's nemesis, Lou.' Turian was my grandfather, and his sons are my uncles. Lou was slower than he used to be, but he came to the conclusion all the same. The baby at the engagement with the forces of Tirnanog. The child she had carried at the Kaili held by Bridget after his father's death. Lou opened his mouth and closed it. You are. Kermit stepped closer. Yes, Kian was my father, though I do not claim him. I am of the clan of Turian. Lou stopped the guards as they entered. No, get me Melton, guards. Wake him and bring him to me. He's at the central table, asleep there. The guards left, and Lou struck, putting his hands around the man's neck. Lou was lean, as lean as his father had been in life, but stronger still than this man, who resisted ably. Though Boak screamed, Lou kept his hands around the man's throat, squeezing until he was red, then purple. At no point did the smile leave Kermit's face, and he saw it. Just how much he looked like Turian the night that Lou had snuck into Turian's residence. But he also looks like the Dagda. Bridget's words came back to him, asking him if he had anyone left who he needed forgiveness from. He did not, but Lou realized that by killing Kermit, what would he gain from that? Breathing heavily, Lou reached down for his spear, and it was then that Kermit lunged. Lou was quicker and brought the spear up. It drove through Kermit's chest and through his back, Lou stepped back, pulled the spear, and kicked Kermit away from him. As he bled out on the floor, staring at Lou, Kermit smiled and whispered something. They'll find you. Lou did not know what that meant and stared at the dying man. Buick was upon him then, beating his shoulder again and again, her words lost to Lou. He said nothing and let her beat him, feeling nothing at all. When the guards entered, Buick was led away, banished to Tara until Lu could bring punishment against her. Meltna inspected the body of Kermit and sighed. Was it wise, Lou, killing the grandson of Turian? Lou stared at the glass-eyed body on the ground. Grandson of Turian? Certainly. But a descendant of the Dagda? No, Meltna, that was not wise. He said no more and left the tent, where no more pleasure was had that night knock was not a tall hill, not in the way other mountains were, and Lou wandered around it all throughout the night. It was oddly quiet for a Beltane eve, and tomorrow the true celebrations would begin, the real rites. He had killed his own ken, a crime Lou thought abhorrent. Certainly, he had killed many Fomorians himself, and he had technically been the cause of Turian's death and his sons through neglect and malice, but he had not raised swords against them. This was different, this was worse. Guilt filled him. It was the first light of dawn when he saw someone, an old woman he thought he recognized, in the pool of the lock on the easternmost side of Isnok. She was washing clothes, a tunic and pants, of blood that had stained them. Had someone else come to a bad end this night? Lou wondered, and started to ask her how he knew her. Walking past her, he said nothing, and then turned back to ask her when he thought better of it, realizing that she was gone. Who had she been? Had he imagined her? Mists hung in the trees around the loch, and it was peaceful for once. Birds began chatting, and Lou thought it pleasant. The skies began to turn from blue to yellow as the sun rose, as orange light filled the air. It was going to be a good Beltane. He thought this until he heard noise from the underbrush. Three youths emerged from the tree line, each carrying a spear, and all three improperly dressed for the trouble they so clearly sought. Lou held a saw in his hand, felt the spear call to him, but it felt impotent in his grip. Something was wrong. ''Do you know who we are?'' said the first, a muscular boy with dark hair. His two brothers were a redhead and a blonde, but all had the same powerful jawline. The same jawline as Lou. As Kermit had before his death. His sons. You were the sons of Kermit. And you are a dead man said the blond brother, throwing his spear. Lou dodged and knocked it into the lock, now lost. Erik must be declared before the court, son of Kermit,' he said as the red-headed brother threw his spear. Lou knocked it away, unable to move due to unsure footing. Adrenaline then filled him. "'We do not wish for an erik, We merely want your blood,' said the dark-headed brother again, throwing his spear." Lu knocked it away, but for the impact, he lost his grip on the Spear of Assal. It flew high in the air and fell into the lock, stirring up silt. What are your names? I deserve that, I think. A delaying tactic. He would kill them and be done with it all. With all his might, he summoned magic of the land to him. I am Ithur, called Makul. "'My red-headed brother is Tithur, called Mekset for our great-grandfather, "'and my blonde brother is Kithur, called Magrin for his likeness to Belinus, the sun god. "'And you deserve less than our names, but we want you to know them before we end you and take your throne.' Lu smiled. "'And what makes you think the stern of Fall will accept you?' "'Ithur and Tithur charged him, and he was quick on his heels, yet the mud held him, as if in contempt, and he fell.' The two brothers took his arms as Mekgrin took his head and hissed through his crooked teeth. For all his magic, Lu could not summon it. The land betrayed him. Our problem, not yours. Die now, King Lu. Holding Lu's hair, he shoved Lu's head below the water. Fortunately for him, Lu was good at holding his breath, but falling had given him a panic. He did not feel he had a full breath in him. If he had his wits, he could call the fairies to him, have them save him. He tried, despite his panic, and in his luck, she appeared. Birog appeared before him, in the water, walking on the lock's bottom. You have summoned me, son of Kian. Why have you summoned me? He tried to speak, but lost only air. Water flooded his mouth, and he lost time. Above him... He felt his flailing fail, and the two sons of Kermit beat him in the stomach to convince him to give up his air. "'You wish that I could save you. You use your magic to command me.' Lu did, but he did not say that. His head felt as though it might burst from blood in it. "'You do not command me any longer, son of Kian. I am loyal to the land, and you betrayed that land.' You spilt the blood of your kin, your only living brother. That is a bridge too far, son of Kian. Did you not see the Morrigan when she gave you the omen? Those were your clothes, she washed, Lou. You are marked for death. Your magic fails you. Your breath fails you. You have failed, Lou, son of Kian. She came closer as Lou at last gave up. His mouth opened seeking air he would never find. Bubbles rose in panic and water began flooding his nose, his throat, his lungs. Everything burned. Birg placed a hand on his face, a real sadness in her eyes. I do not want this, Lou. I would save you if you had asked me yesterday or if you had asked me tomorrow, but fate is clear. This is your end. Everything burned, everything changed. His vision began to fog, yet his focus remained on Birog, the fairy woman who had saved him from death in the whirlpool as an infant, who had protected him against the three sons of Yakit and Taltu all those years ago. How ironic. He was being killed by the three brothers who sought to do their father's bidding. The fire faded and became cold. His vision became black, but the feel of water on him did not fade. Birog's hand on his face faded, but he still saw her. Though his vision failed, she was clear as the morning sun. Come with me, Lou. Our journey will be long. He lost everything. He felt nothing. And then he rose, the water rushing around him, and he felt himself moving. His hands in bidogs. They moved like a fish in a rapid river, towards the endless sea. Goddessy is written, researched, and produced by Greg Wright. Additional writing and editing by Sidney Aker, who advises you not to take unnecessary journeys on treacherous roads. Music by Scott Buckley, who can be found at www.scottbuckley.com.au. Additional sounds by Burr Records and Tim Khan. Want to ask me questions, check out random things I share on Twitter, or look at mythology memes with me? Check us out on Facebook and Twitter at The Goddessy Podcast. And if you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon. Links are in the show description. Godsey updates every Monday. Next week is the last episode in Lou's story. But wait, you say Lou is dead! Well, if you haven't been paying attention, death is hardly the end for Irish gods. We're back next week with the answer to life after death in Lou's story. See you then.